One of the things I appreciate about living in uh, Boise is that it is a uh, strategic community. In many ways, this is the uh, commercial and business and political hub of the uh, state of Idaho. And uh, it's a small enough metropolitan center that I feel that we as a fellowship can have a, a real impact on this city. And by impacting this city, we can uh, radiate our influence through the whole state of Idaho because of the strategic uh, nature of, of Boise as a city. Now, in many ways, Ephesus occupied the same position in Paul's day. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was, in many respects, the commercial center of that province. That's the area of what is now uh, known as Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was originally built because it had a great harbor at the mouth of the Caister River, and the Greeks established the city because it gave them a gateway to all of the natural resources and commercial possibilities of the province of Asia Minor. So it was a very strategic city. Now, Paul was able to uh, turn the city on its ear for the gospel, and uh, the gospel made such sweeping changes in, in the social life of that city uh, that it triggered a huge uh, riot, which uh, uh, David will discuss with you next week. But it had a, an astounding impact on this uh, city, and in fact on the entire province. And uh, I feel if we will imitate the, uh, the pattern that Paul followed in his ministry in Ephesus, that we can duplicate his impact in our city of Boise, and the shock waves can ripple throughout the entire state. So I would like to look with you at this passage in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8, and look at the things that uh, took place uh, through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, uh, things which uh, can take place again today in our, in our lives and in our community with the same, uh, with the same resulting impact. <clears throat> Now, we'll find as we look through this uh, short passage of 12 or 13 verses that there were really only two fundamental things that had to take place for this entire city and province to, uh, to be uh, impacted with the gospel and change. This community was never the same after this. And there were really only two things that had to take place for that to happen. Now, the first is what we find in verses 8 through 10. He, that is Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. <clears throat> well, clearly the emphasis in this little section is on the proclamation of the truth. And that's the first thing that has to happen for a city and a state to be uh, challenged with the gospel and changed is for the truth to be proclaimed. And that was the first thing that, that Paul uh, uh, made sure took place in his personal ministry there in Ephesus. And in doing this, in proclaiming the truth, we have a, a beautiful model here of personal evangelism. And I'd like to look with you briefly at the, at the way in which Paul went about proclaiming the truth and to draw some implications for our own uh, personal evangelistic ministries. 
And they are ingredients which uh, are important for us to observe if our personal evangelistic efforts are to be successful. I noticed uh, that some of our interns and some of our college students are going to Sun Valley for five days in January in an effort to uh, sow the seed of the gospel in that uh, resort community. And for their efforts to be successful, they will need to observe these basic principles that Paul put into practice. The first thing you'll notice is that Paul spoke out boldly. That is, he was courageous in proclaiming the truth. He was unafraid to bring the subject of the gospel into a conversation. We're often timid and, and uh, fearful, but we have no uh, need to be because uh, we, we have to offer people words of life. That in the gospel is the, uh, the secret to people being released from guilt, to finding a new adequacy and ability to handle the pressures of life, uh, to give them insights which will help keep their marriages together, which will build in them a, a healthy sense of self-worth, self-respect. And uh, these are words of life. And we uh, never need to hesitate to boldly proclaim this gospel because it's, it's, it's truth that people need to hear. So Paul was, first of all, bold in his proclamation, unafraid. A friend of mine was uh, skiing at uh, Bogus Basin a couple of weeks ago and was riding up a chairlift with a man he'd never met before in his life, and they struck up a conversation. <clears throat> and my friend asked this man what he did for a living and, and uh, so on, and the man uh, explained what he did for a living. My friend asked him if he enjoyed what he did. And he says, well, no, I really don't. As a matter of fact, I've never had a job that I really liked, that ever satisfied me. And my friend said, well, you, you know why that is, don't you? And I said, well, no, I really don't. And my friend explained that the reason that uh, his jobs had always been dissatisfying is that ever since uh, Adam's original sin, the ground had been cursed. And from that time forward, all of the, the work that men do is uh, by, the, uh, by the sweat of their brow and by hard toil and, and labor. And he went on to explain to this man that the only, uh, the only way in which I have found that my life can be satisfying is through a personal relationship with God. Well, he was simply exercising the boldness of someone who had words of life to offer. Now, the second thing that Luke tells us Paul did was that he reasoned with people. Uh, that word means to discuss. He carried on discussions with people about spiritual things. I think as Christians, we have tended to be far more uh, uh, concerned about talking than listening. And yet Paul was not guilty of that mistake. He was willing to engage in conversation with people and to, uh, to hear them out and use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. Dave Roper often uh, asks people what their philosophy of life is, what kind of values they consider as important. And very often, simply out of politeness, people will ask him in return, and it provides a beautiful opportunity for him to share his faith in Christ. So Paul reasoned with them, secondly. The third thing it says that he did was he persuaded them about the kingdom of God. That is, uh, uh, Paul sought to convince people of the, uh, the reasonableness of Christian faith and to convince them of the offer that was presented to them in the gospel and to appeal to them to respond to it. He didn't uh, pressure them. He didn't demand that they turn or burn. He persuaded them. He sought to appeal to them to make a decision for the gospel. So it was not a pressured approach. It was an approach in which he persuaded and appealed to them. 
And the fourth thing that Luke tells us Paul did is that when he encountered resistance to the truth, he withdrew. That is, he did not force the gospel on people who had no interest in hearing it. And that's a mistake, I think, that we, uh, we often uh, tend to make, barging through uh, closed doors, whether people have an interest in, uh, in hearing the gospel or not. I, heard a, I read a story in Reader's Digest, a little incident that I think beautifully illustrates Paul's approach to evangelism and the one that ought to be our approach. It's a, a little incident that uh, took place in the life of an auto mechanic who was working in his repair shop, and the lady had brought her car in to be serviced, and he was going to drop it off at her home. And as uh, he was driving to her neighborhood, he realized that the only thing he uh, knew was what street she lived on. He didn't have her address. So uh, he didn't know what to do until he noticed a, a garage door opener in the visor. And so what this man did <clears throat> is he drove up and down the street and kept pressing that garage door opener until the garage door finally went up and he wheeled the car right in. And when I read that, I thought that's a beautiful picture of how evangelism is to take place. We as believers just keep sending out those signals, and when the Lord opens a door, we, uh, we take advantage of it and share the, the full news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, when Paul withdrew from the synagogue, when he encountered this resistance, he uh, went to the hall of Tyrannus. This was a school or a lecture hall run by this individual named Tyrannus, and it was a lecture hall that was devoted to the teaching and discussion of Greek philosophy. And this Tyrannus evidently was the main teacher in, uh, in this school. Uh, the name Tyrannus, by the way, means uh, tyrant. We don't know whether his pupils or his parents gave him that name, but uh, it was his lecture hall, and Paul uh, rented this lecture hall and used it as a place to teach the scriptures when he was forced to leave the synagogue. Now, there is one Greek text that we have access to which adds an explanatory note in this verse and seems to be based on uh, reliable tradition. And it says that Paul reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. Now, the way the Greeks and Romans reckoned uh, time, the day started at six o'clock in the morning, so the fifth hour would have been 11 a.m., and the 10th hour would have been 4 p.m. So Paul daily, from 11 o'clock in the morning till 4 in the afternoon, taught the scriptures in the school of Tyrannus. Now, why Paul did that, we understand by uh, learning something about the culture of this, this time. And that is that the workforce in the Roman world, and in some places, like in Greece, I believe this is still true today, uh, they took a siesta every day from 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. they just knock off work at 11, and uh, in the heat of the day, it was too hot to work, and so they just knock off at 11 and pick up again at 4. I kind of appealed to me. I thought I'd born 2,000 years too late when I read that. <laughs> and so what Paul did is he took advantage of what amounted to an extended lunch break and took advantage of that time when people were available from their jobs to teach the scriptures. So while other people went home for their afternoon nap, Paul would teach the scriptures. In fact, one historian tells us that there were more people who were sleeping in Ephesus at one o'clock in the afternoon than one o'clock in the morning. But Paul took advantage of that free time to uh, reason daily in the, in the hall of Tyrannus. 
And as a result, Luke says, uh, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord as Paul carried out this ministry for a period of two years. If you total that up, six days a week from five hours a day, that amounts to a little over 3,000 hours of teaching. So Paul was able to impart a great deal of uh, truth in that amount of time, all of the truth certainly that we have contained in, in the epistles that he has left to us. And as a result, all of Asia was uh, uh, impressed with the, the gospel. Now, Paul himself did not go into these outlying communities in the province. Uh, he stayed in Ephesus and taught the scriptures for two years. So the word was taken out to the far corners of this province by ordinary garden variety type saints, just like uh, you or me, who came to Ephesus uh, either for vacation uh, as tourists or came to Ephesus on business. And uh, they would have heard about Paul and visited the school of Tyrannus, uh, learned the truth, become believers in Jesus, and taken that gospel back with them to their own communities and planted churches. The church of Colossae probably started at this time, as well as the uh, seven churches that John wrote to in the book of Revelation. So all of Asia was touched with the gospel because ordinary people who were taught the scriptures took that truth back with them to their home communities. Far as I read that, that this is re this room is really our uh, hall of Tyrannus. This is where we meet as a fellowship to hear the scriptures taught, and uh, the pattern that we're to imitate is the same one that the uh, the Asian Christians imitated: to meet here, to receive the truth, and to take that truth with us into our uh, into our daily sphere of life and share that truth with others. At the uh, water cooler in the office, and coffee breaks, lunch breaks over the back fence, on uh, chairlifts, wherever the Lord opens a door for the Word, uh, that is where we are to share the Word that God has entrusted to us. But Luke goes on to tell us that the proclamation of the truth was not the only thing that turned Ephesus upside down. There was a, a further element to uh, God's strategy in Ephesus, and he tells us about that in verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. The extraordinary nature of these miracles was that, that people were healed of physical diseases and demons were cast out of people merely by coming in contact with Paul's clothing. That's truly an extraordinary kind of miracle. Luke includes this, I believe, to show us the parallel between the Lord's healing ministry and Paul's ministry. Remember, people were healed by touching the hem of the Lord's garment. And in Acts 5, Luke tells us that people were healed as Peter's shadow passed across them. And he's indicating here that Paul participated in the same kind of of healing ministry. But these extraordinary miracles were the means that God used to authenticate that the message that Paul preached. Now, these uh, pieces of clothing uh, don't quite uh, communicate very accurately to us in English. Uh, we think of handkerchiefs, we think of a hanky that you use to blow your nose or tuck in the breast pocket of a three-piece suit, and the aprons are something you wear when you're uh, barbecuing on Saturday afternoon. But it's clear that the, the handkerchief that Luke is referring to here is the sweat band that, uh, that workmen uh, wrapped around their heads and that the apron was a leather apron that Paul used in carrying out his profession. 
he was a tent maker. And this is Luke's way of telling us that all during this two-year period when Paul taught the scriptures from 11 to 4, he was also a working man. He was a man who got uh, dirt under his fingernails, and these were, the, these were the working clothes of his trade. So uh, he would, like the rest of the Greek uh, working population, would work at his trade from 7 in the morning until 11. And then when the rest of the workmen knocked off and went home for a siesta, Paul would go to the school of Tyrannus and teach. And it's a mark of the hunger of these Asian Christians for the truth that they... Uh, took advantage of the siesta to listen to him teach. He would teach till four in the afternoon, and then he would go back to work and put that handkerchief back on his head and wrap that leather apron around his waist and go back to work making tents. And he did this, evidently, for a period of two full years. And this corrects, by the way, a common impression that we have, a, a misunderstanding that we have about Paul's ministry. It's easy for us to think that Paul was... Uh, very much in the same position as, uh, as paid clergy are today, that he was uh, supported by Christians so he could carry on his ministry full-time. But that's not true. We know from Luke's account here in Acts that it was only on rare occasions that Paul did not work to support himself at the same time he carried on his uh, apostolic ministry. So... Those of you that uh, are working full-time jobs and have to find time to study and minister the scriptures in the, in the cracks and the spare time that you have, you often find that to be uh, wearying and kind of draining after a while. And yet it might be encouraging to know that you are really coming very close to imitating Paul's personal uh, pattern of ministry. But these miracles were God's way of confirming the gospel. And that's always the way that God works. That the proclamation of the truth, in order to be effective, must be accompanied by the demonstration of God's power. It's always those two things working hand in hand. The proclamation of truth accompanied by demonstrations of God's power that make the gospel have impact in a society. Now, sometimes God will, in our day, do the same kind of dramatic things to draw attention to the, to the truth. Ralph Byron was telling us in the men's retreat uh, about a year ago that he was speaking in um, Japan to some college students one day, and he was preparing to share the gospel with them. And he was, uh, uh, the question was asked him, well, how can you even believe that there is a God? And uh, Dr. Byron's response to this student was to ask him, what would it, what would it take to convince you that God did exist? He said, for example, if God sent a 200-mile-an-hour wind uh, rushing through uh, this city, would that convince you that, that God existed? And just at that moment, there was this huge uh, gust blast of wind that blew through that campus, and it flattened trees, and it shook the building where they were meeting. And there was a deathly silence, and after the... <laughs> After the wind uh, ceased, Dr. Byron said, Well, I don't know if that was God or not, but I suggest you listen to me pretty carefully from here on out. <laughs> so, so sometimes God will do that, even in our day. Uh, and yet, uh, by and large, God's method of demonstrating his power today in authenticating the gospel is to demonstrate his power by changing lives, by, by transforming lives, by turning us into people who, who demonstrate a supernatural, 
quality of life in the world around us. And it's only when that takes place that people will start paying attention to the words that we, that we proclaim, when they see a supernatural, unexplainable quality about our lives that they, that they cannot duplicate. There was a, <clears throat> the executive vice president of the International Students uh, Incorporated Ministry was here in Boise a few months ago, and I uh, was interested in uh, something he told us that night, that uh, of all of the Muslims that he knows of that have converted from, uh, the, from Islam to Christianity, there's only one that he knows of who has converted through media, radio, television, or literature. In every other case, uh, these Arabs, these Muslims, became believers in Jesus through a personal contact with someone. And not only a, a personal contact with a Christian, but in someone in whose lives they could see spiritual reality. They could see that these people were the real article. They weren't just involved in some kind of a ritual or going through the motions, but there was a, a genuine spiritual reality to their lives. And the third thing that was important is that in every case there seemed to be some specific act of love that these Christians had done which had been kind of the, the, final, um, the final impetus to get them to acknowledge the gospel. And that's always how God works, is we proclaim the truth and then as God works through us to do extraordinary things, to do loving things, then our words begin to have impact on others. The way uh, Joe Aldrich put it is people do not care how much we know until they know how much we care. Now, one of the things that's unfortunate, uh, I believe, in the Christian church is that we have often uh, communicated to people that the, the thing which is distinctive about Christians is all the things that they do not do, kind of a negative righteousness. Now, this list of the dirty dozen varies from one church to another quite often. Uh, but we often communicate to people that in order to be a Christian, be a good Christian, there are certain basic activities that you must not do, and that's what makes you distinctive. That's what stamps you as uh, different. But it's quite clear from the Scriptures that the emphasis in the New Testament is on positive righteousness, not on the things that we don't do, but the things that we are able to do that other people cannot do things that we have always wanted to do but have been unable to do apart from Christ's power at work within us. Uh, when people begin to see that by God's power we are loving, when other people are hateful and spiteful and unforgiving, when they see that we are, are joyful when the same circumstances are causing other people to be discouraged and depressed, uh, when they see that we are peaceful in circumstances that cause others to panic and to be anxious and uptight, when they see that we are, are patient under circumstances that cause others to be short and sharp and angry, then they will begin to pay attention to the words that we proclaim. So this is always the pattern, and this is the pattern by which um, uh, Boise will be impacted by us uh, for the gospel as we proclaim the truth and as we demonstrate God's power in our ordinary everyday lives. <clears throat> now, as always, there were those who saw in... Paul's ministry, this power over evil spirits, and sought to counterfeit that kind of power. And Luke tells us about that in verses 13 and 14. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, 
I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. In the ancient world, there was a widespread belief in the presence of evil spirits, and uh, in Ephesus in particular, there was a preoccupation with uh, these demonic uh, evil forces. And Ephesus was a center at this point of uh, superstition and black magic and black arts, and there were uh, many people living in Ephesus who claimed to have certain secret spells and incantations that gave them power over these, uh, these unclean spirits that all of Ephesus lived in fear, in fear of. And these, uh, the Greeks held Jews in particular in high regard in this respect. They felt convinced that Jews had access to secret spells which gave them power over demonic forces. They knew, for example, that Jews uh, never pronounced the name of their God. That was always a, a, a great secret that they guarded very jealously. And they assumed that Jews had other uh, secrets like that which gave them a, a, a hold, a toehold against these, these evil spirits. And here was a group, Luke tells us, of itinerant Jewish exorcists who traveled from place to place uh, carrying out a ministry of exorcism and evidently saw in Ephesus uh, a fertile ground to ply their trade. And they had been doing quite well. There was enough business in Ephesus to support uh, seven brothers in this occupation. We don't know who this uh, Sceva was, their father. Luke tells us he was a Jewish chief priest. We don't know whether that means he was a member of a high priestly family in Jerusalem or a head of one of the Levitical orders of priests. My own guess is that he was a self-styled Jewish chief priest, that he opened an office in Ephesus and hung out a shingle over his door that said, Jewish chief priest. And people just flocked to him in droves, and he would send his seven sons out into the field to... Uh, take care of appointments with people who wanted to have demons uh, cast out. Now, as these sons of Sceva saw Paul's uh, power over these unclean spirits, they uh, paid careful attention to the formula that Paul used, and they sought to use that very same formula in their own exorcism. They figured if it worked for Paul, it'll work for us. But they didn't quite know what they were dealing with, and Luke tells us uh, that this weapon exploded in their hands in verses 15 to 17. They encountered this evil spirit, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? I love that. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I can just see them tumbling out of windows and doors with their clothes hanging in tatters. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Well, what did the people learn from this little little encounter? Well, they learned that this kind of power over these evil spirits was available only to those who had a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, It was only those, uh, Paul and his uh, fellow believers, who had a personal relationship with Jesus that had this kind of control and authority over evil spirits. That kind of power could not be duplicated. It couldn't be counterfeited. It wasn't available from any other source. 
And uh, people realized this. Evidently, a crowd had gathered around this home where this exorcism was to take place. And when all seven of these brothers came tumbling out of the uh, house, uh, the word quickly spread through all of Ephesus. And people feared the name of the Lord and magnified his name because they realized that that he and those who had a relationship with him alone were the ones who had this power over these evil spirits. Now Luke tells us in verses 18 to 20 what the end result was of this event. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Evidently, there were many people in Ephesus who had practiced these black arts that engaged in occult practices or witchcraft and astrology and had sought to use these secret formulas which were current. And when they saw the power available in the name of Christ, they uh, turned their back on their former practice of black magic, publicly renounced their uh, practices, and in fact brought all of their books together and uh, placed them in the center of the town square there in Ephesus and had a huge uh, bonfire. Luke tells us that there were 50,000 pieces of silver worth of uh, books. These evidently were scrolls that contained uh, magic formulas. Uh, The key to any of these uh, formulas that would give you control over evil spirits was always their uh, secrecy. So if you could convince people that you had in your possession a document which contained secret formulas known only to a select few, and you would sell it to them for a price and it would give them control over all of the evil spirits and diseases, then people would pay a tidy sum to get their hands on that document because people truly believe this, this uh, superstition. And when these people realized the bankruptcy and the futility of that, they brought all of these parchments together with these magic formulas, stacked them together, and burned them. Now, a piece of silver uh, in that day was uh, the equivalent of a working man's daily wage. And I did a little quick uh, computation and just figuring at... uh, At minimum wage, this works out in uh, today's dollars in terms of purchasing power to over a million dollars worth of books that went up in smoke right there in the city of Ephesus. That's a lot of books. And this was bound to make a powerful impression on the the people in Ephesus. And as a result of this, people finding new power in in Jesus, uh, the entire city of Ephesus was impacted for the gospel. Now, this sounds a little bit bizarre to this whole instance, a little bit bizarre to us who live in the Western world. And I think it's because in our day, the, uh, the presence of evil spirits is not seen as directly as it was in Paul's day. The gospel has made a clearing in the jungle, in a sense, here in the, in, in the United States. And these evil forces, which are still present... Uh, have to operate uh, indirectly now, and their attacks on us are far more subtle. In Paul's day and in the Lord's day, they were direct. They would possess people and oppress people. In our time, their, uh, their ministry, their efforts are much more indirect and subtle. And yet Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that our battle is against the same forces of wickedness that, that Paul had to encounter here at Ephesus. 
And he said there that our struggle, our battle in life, is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And that is still true today. The basic enemies that we have to face are unseen. This is a correction to the way we often think. It always seems to us that that people are the problem, that it's it's our wives or our husbands or our children or our employers or our employees or the people we work with or our children or our parents who always seem to be crimping our style and and making our lives miserable. But Paul is quite clear that uh, the truth of the matter is that it's not people who are enemies, but it's these these invisible forces of wickedness who are at work to blight and to destroy. And it's these demonic forces that take advantage of, uh, of people and use them to make us anxious and, and uptight and uh, ill at ease and discouraged and depressed. And uh, the encouraging note is that we have access to the same power, the same source of power, that gave Paul this very visible uh, authority over these demonic forces. That power is still available to us today. And so as these forces are at work in, in our lives to, to make us hateful and unforgiving, to make us uh, anxious and to, uh, to make us uh, uptight and depressed, we have access to a source of power which gives us victory and power, authority over these evil forces which are out to destroy life. And as people see this, uh, this difference begin to be demonstrated in life that we respond uncommonly and supernaturally to circumstances and to pressures and to difficulties. They will begin to sit up and take notice of the words that we have to proclaim. I was reading just uh, recently in a magazine uh, about the life of a, a man who was an Arab, who was a former Muslim, who was now a missionary to Jews, which is certainly an interesting little twist. And the, the real striking thing about this man's life to me is that he lived in the city of Nazareth in 1948 when the Israeli tanks rumbled into Nazareth and pretty well leveled the city in the Israeli takeover. And when those uh, Israeli tanks swept into Nazareth, his father was killed and his uh, home was leveled and he and his mother had to flee for their very lives. <clears throat> And he carried around a deep bitterness and hatred of the Israeli people for many years until he met the Lord, and the Lord began to purge him of that hatred and that bitterness and to cleanse that out of his system. And many years later, he returned to uh, Israel and was on a, uh, taking a tour of Palestine when his tour guide happened to uh, mention that he had been a tank commander when the Israelis had taken Nazareth. So this man that was his tour guide may have been the very, uh, the very man who was responsible for the death of his father and the, the demolition of his home. And uh, this man told this tour guide, he said, you know, I lived in Nazareth in 1948 when you, uh, when you came into that town. And by all the traditions of my, uh, my forefathers, I ought to avenge, my de- avenge the death of my father on you at this very instant. But I've learned that Jesus of Nazareth has forgiven me my sins, and I can forgive you as well. And I would like to tell you about that. And he did. And see, that makes an impact on people when they see that uh, we respond supernaturally. We respond in ways that ordinary people do not to the same pressures. They sit up and they begin to take notice. 
Now, many of us are uh, making uh, plans and goals and resolutions for the new year. If you're like me, they probably mostly concern diet and exercise. And, uh, <clears throat> but I would suggest that we, uh, that we add to this list the two things that we have seen in our account today, that we uh, make it our commitment this year to be people who receive and proclaim the truth and to be people who demonstrate uh, God's power in daily life. Let's uh, stand and pray together. Lord, we're grateful for what we learned from this account about how we as your saints can um, make an impact on the society and the community around us. And we ask for your help in this. We realize that apart from your resource, we are inadequate for this task. But we pray that you will spark in us a continued hunger to receive the truth, a boldness in proclaiming it, and that you would above all make us people who are characterized by a, an unnatural quality of life, that people would see in us the, the same character that Christ demonstrated on earth. And we realize this can only be by the release of your life within us. Make us humbly dependent upon you as, uh, that this week and this year we might truly be uncommon people in our ordinary circumstances. We thank you that you're uh, with us and, and able and adequate to accomplish this through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.